It's a pretty tough act to follow. Welcome, Life Church. Glad to see you this morning. Um, I hope you have a Bible with you or a way to get the Bible in front of you. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15 today, and I know you'll be helped if you have that with you. Um, I'm going to take a minute and talk to the children in the room also. Kids, if you're here and you're under the age of 11, I just want you to know that you're awesome, and I think it's great that you're here. I'm so much more excited that you're here than I am that your parents here, if I'm just honest. And so welcome to be with us today. I'm glad that you're here. I want to explain to you what's going on right now. See, just a second ago, I asked your moms and dads, whoever brought you here, to turn in their Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And that's really important to me because for the next 30, 35 minutes or so, I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to talk. And it's possible that you might begin to think that we all think that my voice is pretty important. And I at least want to be on the record in saying that my voice isn't important and that the voice that matters in this space right now is the voice of God. And that's what we have in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. In our whole Bibles, we have the God who created everything simply by speaking. Well, in our Bibles, he speaks to us. He talks to us. And so when we gather in this space, what's most important in this time is the fact that we come together and we hear from him. And so I'm really glad that you're here with us, kids. And I'm really glad that you brought your moms and dads with you. And I hope you've seen them turn to Ecclesiastes 3. If they haven't or if they, you know, start to drift off just a little bit, I want to give you permission to, you know, elbow them or pinch them or whatever you have to do to keep them on track. Because what we really need today is to hear from the Lord. All of us need that. Now, parents... If you have little ones in the room, man, you're awesome. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we're glad. I hope that you know that we think your kids being here is great. And I imagine that you're sitting here thinking, you know, maybe somebody's going to be a little bit squirmy or a little bit loud, or maybe they're going to light the building on fire or something like that. Like that. And, and we're just not concerned about any of that. I mean, if your child does manage to light the building on fire, we'll, we'll put it out. And if they're squirmy or loud or anything, then we will gladly bear with that because your children, like you, are a part of our family. Sometimes families are noisy. Sometimes they're disruptive. That's okay. And so we're so glad that you're with us and hope that you will continue to be. We need to hear from God today, as we've said. So let's read together Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, and I'll pray, and we'll begin. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord for us, church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for your voice that we now hear. And we pray that you give us ears that are truly hearing and eyes that are opened to perceive and behold your beauty as they're revealed in these words. We need your help for that now, and we pray that you will work in and through this time that we have in your word today. Pray all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, when we started this series through the book of Ecclesiastes two weeks ago, I said that Ecclesiastes is a relatively unknown and obscure and confusing book in the Old Testament, and um, I definitely think that's true. However, the passage we're looking at this morning is not an obscure passage. It's not an unknown passage. In fact, it is one of the most well-known passages in the Old Testament. If you're like me and the child of a couple of baby boomers, you recognize the, word, the words of this poem from a really awful pop song that your parents insisted on listening to back in the day. Um, my skin crawled immediately when I opened my Bible to this passage this week, not because of anything this passage says, but just because I remember the atrocities of my parents' vinyl collection. It was bad. This was part of it. Um, and so because of you know, a famous pop song, this poem at least, is a really well-known passage, uh, well-known to people who even aren't Christians. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's a well-understood passage, of course, and so I'm glad we can spend some time to unpack it together. On the surface, this is clearly a passage about time. Right, that word time, it appears 30 times in these 15 verses, and 28 of those 30 times are just in the poem itself in verses two through eight. Um, But saying that this is a passage about time isn't the same thing as saying it's a passage about something like time management. Like the topic here isn't really like how to get things done or how to make the best use of your time. No, time is the topic, but it's not the subject of this passage. What is the subject of this passage? Well, let's start by making just a few observations. Um, First, in the poem, in verses 2 through 8, There are seven verses. In those seven verses are 14 pairs, two per verse. And in each pair, the ideas, well, they cancel one another out, right? There's a positive and a negative. One undoes the other, and then that one undoes the first one. And so in life, there is a time to be born and a time to die. And the time to die undoes the work of the time to be born, There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. One undoes the other. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to break down and a time to build up. 
And throughout the poem, you have just that pattern of positive, negative, or opposite, opposite. The whole point is that there is a season for everything, but the net result of those seasons is nothing because all of these ideas cancel each other out. The second thing that we should observe is the fact that I'm, I'm really sure that verse 1 serves as the introduction to the poem. The preacher, he says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so he introduces us to the topic of times and seasons. And then he launches into that poem. But then I think that verse 9 really is the conclusion to the poem. He asks the question, what gain has the worker from his toil? And I think that's, that's kind of how the poem lands, right? He's asked this question because of the way the poem just sort of seems to make life seem like it's meaningless. I mean, if there really is a time to be born and a time to die, and whatever is born ultimately dies, if there really is a time to plant and a time to pluck up, and whatever is planted will ultimately be plucked up, if there really is a time for love and a time for hate, if there really is a time for war and a time for peace, and wherever there is war, there will eventually be peace, and wherever there is peace, there will eventually be war, if it's really true that everything cancels everything else out, then isn't the logical question, what's the point? Why bother? And so that's why verse 9 asks that question. What gain has the worker from his toil? It's really the conclusion to the poem. The third thing we should observe is that this passage, it's clearly describing life in a fallen world, a world that's broken by sin and death. To put that another way, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no time to mourn. There will be no time to kill. There will be no time to hate. There will be no time for war. There will be no time for any of the sorrow and the suffering that this poem describes. As Christians, we long for the day when Jesus returns and wipes every tear from every eye and makes every sad thing untrue. But in the meantime, we live in the kind of world that is described by this poem. The last thing that we should observe, I think, as we're thinking about the poem in particular, is that this poem, it describes real life, and I'd even say all of real life. And what I mean is that every one of us sitting in the room can find ourselves in this poem somewhere. Like every one of us has come through the doors experiencing something that's described here, something that this poem speaks to. And so some of us come through the doors, and it is for us a time to mourn, right? It's a time of grief and, and sorrow. Maybe that grief and sorrow comes simply from some personal heartache that we are enduring, the end of a relationship that mattered to us, the loss of an opportunity that we had hoped for and in. Some of us, we come through the door with the heavier grief of just life in a pandemic, and the seemingly heavier grief of what we've witnessed in our culture over recent weeks as the real and just pain caused by real injustice has just spilled onto our streets in ways that are hard to watch and hard to process. And so I think many of us probably come through these doors thinking that it is right now in 2020 a time for mourning. But while that morning's widespread, it's not morning for everyone. I mean, there are people celebrating graduations and 
birthdays and weddings and new births and growing children and relationships that are, that are thriving. And so even when for some it is a time to mourn, it is for others a time for dancing with joy. And so one of the things that we should ask as we think about how this passage speaks to us, and we should ask, like, what season do I find myself in this morning? Like, what time has the Lord appointed for my life right now? That's been a question that I've just really wrestled with this week as I think about my own life and then as I think about our church family here. Um, I've thought especially about the reality that right now is, in a way, a time to keep silence. It's a time in light of the pain and the injustice that we've been witnessing um, to listen and to learn from people who have experiences that are different than mine. But I'm also mindful of the fact that that time to keep silent will not be the time forever that it will be replaced by a time when it's right and necessary to, to speak up and to speak out the causes that are near and dear to our Lord's heart. And so I'm just mindful of the fact that this poem, it really encompasses like all of life. There's a season for everything. But as verse 9 tells us, given the fact that everything seems to cancel everything else out, we're then left with the lingering question, what gain is there from all of our toil, from all of our work? What can possibly come from our lives? And if the preacher of Ecclesiastes stopped at the end of verse 9, we would have no answers to those questions. But he doesn't stop. He answers his own question, I think, by making three observations about the God who appoints the times and the seasons. And again, because it's so important to me that you recognize that I'm just not a talking head standing up here, but that God has spoken to us, and I'm trying to help us all understand what God has said to us. Let me point out why I think there are three observations from this preacher. Like you notice in verse 10, he begins, he says, I have seen, and then he describes one of his observations. In verse 12, he says, I perceived, and then describes his second observation. And then in verse 14 again, I perceive. And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he's, he's told us something about the way that time works, and now he tells us his observations in light of the God who has ordained those times and seasons. And so let's work through the three things that he teaches us about God and about time today. The first one, Ecclesiastes teaches us to embrace the beauty of God's complete sovereign control of all time. Let's embrace the beauty of the fact that God is in control of all times and all seasons. That's really the idea in verses 10 and 11. Read with me again, if you will. He says in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning the end. Now church, the rhythms of life, they might seem quite random to us. The cycle of birth to death and 
weeping to laughter and mourning to dancing, seasons of tearing and sowing and keeping silence and speaking, the seasons of love and hate and war and peace. Like from our vantage point, as life just tumbles through those cycles, all of that might seem rather unpredictable and even pointless. I mean, just right now in 2020, from our vantage point, an unseen microscopic virus is threatening the lives of millions. Right now, from our vantage point, millions have lost their jobs in recent months, and we all face a season of uncertainty economically and socially and otherwise. From our vantage point, unrest and pain and violence have just overflowed into our streets in recent weeks. From our vantage point, our society, it's fractured and divided in seemingly irreconcilable ways. But what Ecclesiastes tells us is that God makes everything beautiful in its time. In other words, he has and is sovereignly overseeing and ordaining these troubled days. He sovereignly works all things in these troubled, uncertain, and heartbreaking days for his glory and for our good. And so none of what we witness is truly random. None of it is truly unpredictable. None of it surprises God. I mean, it's not like God had to, you know, convene the Holy Trinity and come up with some kind of COVID-19 response plan, right? It's not like something happened that caught God off guard and suddenly he had to adapt in order to deal with whatever happened. No, God is sovereignly in control of all seasons in all time. And he makes everything beautiful in its time. And I know it can be threatening to consider a God who who is sovereign over all things. I mean, I think we're comfortable with a God who's a little bit sovereign, who's, who's kind of in charge, who's somewhat in control. But it's, it's quite uncomfortable to reckon with a God who is entirely in control and who is sovereign over all seasons and all times until we remember the fact that this is the very same God who entered into time in order to save us from our sin and our rebellion against him. It's a God who steered all of history towards the moment when he entered time himself in the form of Jesus Christ, his one and only beloved son, and he limited himself with all the frailty of our humanity and died an agonizing substitutionary death in our place so that he could save us and welcome us into his family. When we consider the fact that God steered history towards that and that he sovereignly oversaw all of history to bring us to that moment in the sovereignty of God, it's a much more beautiful thing and a much less threatening thing to us. I mean, this is what Paul says in Galatians 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, at the very perfect time, at the moment that God had been steering all of history toward, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, God has steered all of history towards the moment when his son died so that he might welcome us into his family if we repent of our sin and trust him in faith. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, at the right time, Christ died 
be ungodly. This is why we can trust the God who rules over all of history. This is why we can trust the God who makes everything beautiful in its time. Because he's ruled over history to save us. And so we can trust him. That doesn't mean we'll always understand him. I think that's the point of verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. In other words, eternity's long, it's, it's just stitched into our soul. It's etched into our hearts in such a way that we're always longing for what is eternal and will never be satisfied by what is temporary and what is earthly. But notice he adds that God's done that yet so that he cannot find out, so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, we just won't always understand the way God moves season to season and time to time. We won't always understand the rhythm of a time to be born and a time to die and a time for war and a time for peace. But church, we are not God. Our place is to trust him and to embrace the beauty of his complete sovereign control over all things and all time. The second thing Ecclesiastes observes is the fact that because God is sovereign, we are free to enjoy life and to do good in the world. When God's sovereign hand guides us, in other words, we are free to delight in the gifts that he gives us, and we can be free to do good works with the talents and the resources that he's put into our hands. This is what verses 12 and 13 are about. He says, I perceived there is nothing better for them, for us, than to be joyful, that's a command, and to do good, that's a command, as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure, there's another command, in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. In other words, because God sovereignly holds you by the hand, enjoy what he's given you and do good with what he's given you. My son Isaac, when he was two years old, we lived uh, down the street from our local elementary school and next to that elementary school was uh, our very large playground with a big park area. And I think for a few years, every day when I got home from work, Isaac and I would walk up the street to that playground and play on that playground, and it was a pretty sweet playground, at least from my perspective. They didn't make playgrounds like that when I was a kid. When I was a kid, playgrounds were like a pile of sand. But now, this, this playground, there was a climbing wall and like a big rope swing and a zip line. There's was, there was a lot of sweet stuff at this playground that Isaac did not care about at all. What Isaac cared about with, with regard to this playground was the four-inch concrete edging that went all the way around the playground, separating it from the field that it was in. That four-inch concrete edging was Isaac's balance beam, and that's all he cared to play on and with. He ignored all of the expensive stuff and played on the rock. And every day, we'd, we'd get to the park, and Isaac would, I'd ask him, like, bro, do you want to go up and, and, and swing on the swings? He says, no. It's like, you want to slide on the slide? And he says, no, I want to I wanna walk on that. And so I'd stand there, and he'd get up on this little four-inch edging, and he would walk, he would try to circumnavigate, like walk all the way around the playground. Uh, the only thing is, and, and I asked Isaac for his permission to share this particular detail, he gave it to me. The only thing is that, that Isaac, as a two-year-old, he was a bit cautious. 
And so that four inches of concrete edging, like he wasn't so sure about that, right? And so we, we took that journey very slowly. When I say very slowly, I mean very, very, very slowly. And so we'd be at the park for like 30 minutes and he'd have made it a quarter of the way around the playground. They'd be like, Isaac, it's dinner time, bro. We've got to go. And so what I would do then is I would reach my hand out to him and he would put his little tiny two-year-old hand in mine and I'd hold him firmly and tightly. And the second that I held Isaac firmly and tightly, he'd pick up the pace because he was no longer afraid of falling. He knew that so long as I held his hand, he was safe. He was secure. Now, I think that's a bit how Ecclesiastes calls us to live in light of the sovereignty of God. If God ordains all times and all seasons, and if he makes everything beautiful in its time, then we are free, church, to run without fear of falling. We are free to enjoy life and to do good works without fear of falling. Because the God who, who has put all of those things into our lives in the first place, he sovereignly oversees everything. We can, we can do what he calls us to do precisely because he's holding our hand through everything that we do. If God wasn't sovereign, then there would be risk, right? If God wasn't sovereign, then you know the opportunities that come our way, we would feel kind of, kind of tenuous about them, maybe even scared of them. We would be cautious. Because God is sovereign, we can be confident that whatever he calls us to is for our good and for his glory. And that every opportunity he puts before us is something that we can enjoy if it truly is from him. Now, I don't mean to say that this means that there will never be times of sorrow or suffering in our lives. No, I mean, the poem makes it very clear that there will be times of sorrow and suffering and that those things come from God's hand. But what the poem makes clear as well is the fact that those things will, in the end, be beautiful things. They'll, they'll be things that God uses for our good. Because God, in his sovereignty, he'll never surrender us to the times and seasons of life. He'll never let us go and get swept up in a time of mourning or a time of grief. He'll never let us go and get swept up in a time of hatred or a time of I mean, church, we can be sure and confident about our lives because God is sovereign over our lives. I hope you know every single unique detail of your life and of mine, it's from God. Like every triumph, every challenge, every trial, every blessing, all of those things come from God. And if God was, was not sovereign, then the times and the seasons, they could overwhelm us. The time of mourning could mean more grief than we could handle. The time to die could mean more pain than we might bear. The time for speaking could come when we aren't ready to speak. The time for war could come when we long for peace. I mean, if God was not sovereign, then the times and seasons of life, they could batter us against the shore like a ship in a hurricane. But because God is sovereign, Sovereignty becomes to us a sure and steady anchor that allows us to endure any storm. And not just to endure it. His sovereignty allows us to pursue joy and to do good in life. Because we can trust that he's made everything beautiful in its time. And so we're free to enjoy 
all the things that God makes beautiful in his good and gracious sovereignty. The third thing the preacher teaches us about time is that because of his complete and enduring sovereignty, we should fear God. And that's the final observation here. Verse 14 says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. I mean, that's, a, that's an absolute statement there about how wonderfully and beautifully sovereign God is, isn't it? Whatever God does, it endures forever. If God has done it, no one can subtract from it, and no one can add to it, because God has done it. It endures. But notice that we do have a response to that. God has done it, verse 14, so that people fear before him. God's sovereignty is intended to produce in us what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And and fearing God, church, it's one of the key ideas in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to see it again and again and again as we walk through this book this summer. And so it's really, I think, helpful for us to clarify what we mean by the fear of the Lord. Fearing the Lord means holding in perfect tension with one another two very separate ideas. The first idea is the terrible holiness of God. It means fixing our eyes and our hearts on a picture of a God who could, if he chose to, completely rip us apart because he is so perfect and awesome in power. Right, it's holding on to a vision of God in which he is so terrifyingly holy that we respond to God the same way that the prophet Isaiah did when he beheld the holiness of God in his temple. Isaiah, he immediately said, seeing God for who he is, he said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. When Isaac saw When Isaiah saw God, he saw how holy he was, and he was immediately undone by that vision. Simon Peter had a similar moment with the Lord Jesus when he he saw that Jesus was more than just a teacher. When he beheld Jesus' power, immediately said to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so holding on to the, the terrifying holiness and righteousness of God It means always approaching God like he is a ferocious beast that could rip you apart if he chose to. That he's a ferocious beast that you just simply cannot turn your back from. But at the same time, we hold on to that vision of God, but then we also hold on to an equal vision of God's love and his mercy and his grace. Like we remember the fact that this this God who could rip us apart has chosen instead to adopt us as his sons and daughters if we've trusted him in faith and repented of our sins. This same God who could rip us apart has chosen to lavish upon us his grace, not because we've earned it, not because we could earn it, not because we've deserved it in any way, but because he chooses to give it freely. This same God has love for us that is wide and long and high and deep. And it's only when we hold on to those two things together when we know that there's this beast that could rip us apart, but instead calls on us to call him friend and calls on us to approach him as sons and daughters. Only when we see those two things held together in perfect tension do we truly fear the Lord. 
John Piper, he calls the fear of the Lord a trembling pleasure. And he says that you should imagine being caught in the middle of a terrible ice storm while you're on like an Arctic glacier. And you're aware of the fact that the storm has the power to like wipe you out, just to push you off the cliff to your demise immediately. But then in the middle of the storm, while it's still raging around you, you find that there's this cleft in the rock that you can hide in and be safe in. And so the minute that you're there, the minute that you're in that cleft and you're safe from the elements of the storm, I mean, you still see the storm. You still feel its power, and you still fear the fact that the storm could in a moment wipe you out, but at the same time, you acknowledge in your heart of hearts that you are safe. And so the storm, it still makes you tremble, even as you find comfort in your security. Writing about this, he describes it. He says, at first there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. And then he adds, and I hope you know this. He says, oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. Church, do you know that? The thrill of facing the awesome power of God, yet knowing that you are safe. That's the fear of the Lord. And that's how we should respond to our sovereign God who ordains all things and makes all things beautiful in its time. I was in high school when the movie Titanic came out. And um, I saw that movie several times in the theater. Not because I liked that movie particularly, but because I was fairly depraved. And it occurred to me that if I asked a girl to go see that movie, she would say yes. And so I did ask several, and several said yes. And so I saw that movie more times than I really cared to admit. And um, it's not a movie that I've seen since. (laughs) But uh, there's one scene in Titanic that virtually everybody who's even heard of the movie knows, even if you haven't seen the movie. And that's the scene where Jack, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, stands at the very bow of the ship. And he, like, sticks his arms out and says, I'm the king of the world. And I remember even as a lost, foolish 17-year-old, I watched that scene, and I thought to myself, well, that's ridiculous, because in two hours, that guy's dead. He's not king of anything. He's about to be at the bottom of a frozen ocean. What kind of king is that? And even as a 17-year-old, that struck me. Friends, there's only one king of the world. He is king of all things. He's king over time. He's sovereign over time. He makes all things beautiful in their time. He ordains every season. And our response to him, to his kingship, is that we should fear him and worship him. So I pray that you know him. And I pray that with us now you'll join us as we respond to our king who is worthy of all praise.
Jesus, you are that king. We thank you and praise you for coming at the perfect time to save us. We thank you, Father, for sovereignly overseeing all things so that your son could come at the perfect time to save us. And we pray that knowing him, you would lead us to respond in fear and trembling before you, that you would lead us to respond in worship. You are worthy of our praise, God. Help us to worship you now. Pray in your name, Jesus.